You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right, so this Sunday we are in Psalm 21, and I'd like to start by reciting this psalm for you. And I want you to uh, receive this, hear this, in an attitude of prayer. Psalm 21 is not about us, okay? This psalm is about the king, but it has been written for us. And so receive this, Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his harsh desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad in the joy of your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their inhabitants from the earth, their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord in Psalm 21. And I want you to notice right away two parts to this psalm. Verses 1 to 7 and then verses 8 to 12. And it's, it's pretty easy to notice the change from the first part to the second. The first part, verses 1 to 7, David, the psalmist, he is addressing Yahweh about the king. And in the second part, verses 8 to 12, David is addressing the king in view of Yahweh. That's the difference between the two parts. And I, I want us to see this in the text. So go ahead. Now let's start here with verse one. I want you to see this. Verse one introduces the king. The king rejoices in the Lord. The king greatly exults in the Lord's salvation. And then verse two says, you have given him his heart's desire. And this is the first place where we have to make an interpretive decision about the you and the him. Who are they referring to? Well, in the context here, we see that the you is Yahweh and the him is the king. And that's the case all the way through verse 7. The you, your is referring to the Lord, Yahweh, and then the he, him is referring to the king. And one thing you can do that might help you track with the passage is actually read through the first seven verses and just drop in those names for the pronoun. So like in verse 2, Yahweh has given the king his heart's desire. Verse three, for Yahweh meets the king with rich blessings. Yahweh sets the crown of fine gold upon the king's head. You can try that out through verse seven to kind of get a feel of how this, this sounds, what's being said here. It's clear in this first part, verses one to seven, David, the psalmist, is talking to Yahweh 
about the king. But now notice the change in verse 8. Nothing else is mentioned after verse 8. Nothing else is mentioned about the king in third person because David starts addressing the king in the second person. The, the you, your, it changes from being to Yahweh about the king to now it's to the king himself with Yahweh still in view. And we see this best, I think, in verse 9. You, in verse 9, which is the king, will make his enemies as a blazing oven when he appears. Now, the second part of that verse, we see that Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath. So the king's judgment in the first part of the verse and then Yahweh's wrath in the second part of the verse are in concert together. David is speaking to the king, but it's not disconnected from Yahweh. They go together. Yahweh is still in view. So again, just for a summary here, in verses 1 to 7, the psalmist David is speaking to Yahweh about the king. And then in verses 8 to 12, David is speaking to the king in view of Yahweh. Okay, but here's the big question. Who is this king? Is David talking about himself and to himself? Or is David talking about and to someone else, such as his descendant, God promised him in 2 Samuel 7, who would reign as king forever. Is David, in these verses, is he talking about himself or about the Messiah? It's the Messiah. He is talking about the Messiah. In Psalm 21, David is talking about the Messiah who will one day appear in the future and reign forever. This again, this is the focal point of the book of Psalms. And in fact, in Psalm 21, there are allusions to earlier Psalms that are meant to sort of tie all these Psalms together as messianic. We're gonna see that as we walk through Psalm 21. But I just wanted to go ahead right now, right away, I wanted to let the cat out of the bag. This Psalm, Psalm 21, is about the Messiah. The composer of the book of Psalms put this psalm here because of its message of hope in David's future descendant. The book of Psalms wants us to know what we should think when we think about the Messiah. And overall, in a word, here it is. We should know that the Messiah is glorious. We're supposed to know the Psalms wants us to know. We're supposed to know that God highly honors his Messiah and he has given his Messiah glory like no other. And now for the rest of our time in this teaching, I just want us to look closer at that glory. I'm going to show you at least three ways here in Psalm 21 where Yahweh has given the Messiah unique glory. Here's the first way, right away. Here's the first. Number one, Yahweh enthrones the Messiah as the universal, eternal king. 
Notice in verse 2 the relationship between Yahweh and the Messiah. Whatever it is that the Messiah desires in his heart, God has given that to him. Now, back in Psalm 20, verse 4 says, May he, Yahweh, grant you your heart's desire. Now, Psalm 21, verse 2 says, Yahweh has given him his heart's desire. And together, these Psalms, 20 and 21, they're actually echoing Psalm 2. Remember now back in, in the very opening of the psalm, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verse 8, Yahweh tells his Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. In Psalm 2, Yahweh honors the Messiah by inviting him to ask for supremacy over the nations. And in Psalm 21, what we see is an extension of that, which means this psalm is not just about a one-time battle, but this is about an all-time kingly authority over all the nations, just like we saw in Psalm 18. The Messiah getting his heart's this is important the messiah getting his heart's desire this is not like a genie in a bottle kind of thing okay this is not a kind of choose your own fantasy kind of thing this is precisely to do with the messiah's reign as king over all the messiah has asked for the ends of the earth and god has answered him and we see that here how has yahweh given the messiah his heart's desire how has he not withheld the request of his lips verse 3 by meeting the messiah with rich blessings and placing a crown upon his head this of course is kingship this is a, a coronation is happening here and this is not a little tribal kingdom this is a universal kingdom all the nations rage all the kings of the earth conspire together against Yahweh and against his anointed. But Yahweh laughs at them. Yahweh holds them in derision. Why? Because he has set his king, his Messiah, to rule over them. Psalm 2. Not only that, but Yahweh has also crowned the Messiah as king for all time. King over all and king for all time. That's verse four. What else did the Messiah ask for? What the king asked for here? Eternal life. Length of days forever and ever. We might read that and think, man, that sounds kind of boring. Um, this is just like an you know, endless ongoing time, but that's not the idea here. The, the, the request for eternal life is in reference to the rain, which echoes... God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, where God said he would establish the Messiah's throne forever. The Messiah is to be king over all for all time. This is universal, eternal kingship, and Yahweh has given that glory to his Messiah. Whereas, as, as verse 5 puts it, the Messiah's glory is great through Yahweh's salvation. Splendor and majesty Yahweh bestows on his Messiah. Splendor, majesty, glory, these are all the same idea. It's the highest honor. That's what we should think. This is the, the highest honor. Yahweh has given the highest honor to his Messiah. And if we step out just a little bit and we take a look, we could say, we should say, we do say, God the Father has bestowed the highest honor 
on his son. And we see this, of course, in the New Testament. What, what kind of honor has the father given the son? The father has made Jesus the watershed for all humanity. Jesus is like the cosmic fork in the road. Jesus is the difference maker. And every single person on this planet must answer to him. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Then there's John 5, where Jesus says that the Father has given him the authority to give life to whoever he wills and also to issue judgment. In John 5, 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Then in John 6, 40, Jesus says that it's the Father's will, the Father's decision, His will to make the Son the focus of our salvation. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. The Father has exalted Jesus to this place. To be king over all means to have this kind of authority. He has the authority to give life and to give judgment. He even has authority over his own life. And we see this in John 10, 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. He asked life of you. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Yeah, you did, Father. You gave him what he asked. You gave him authority over his own life and over all of life. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. This is what belongs to universal, eternal kingship. And more than that, more than that, the Father has also exalted Jesus so highly that the people of God, the church, can do absolutely nothing apart from him. Jesus, he, he literally says this in John 15, 5. He, he, he is the vine. We are the branches. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is what it means to be the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22, he, God the Father, put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. I love, I love what John Owen says about this. I'm talking about the 17th century Puritan John Owen, okay? Uh, he says that the rule of Christ as king of the church is so sovereign that it extends to, to even reigning spiritually over the minds, souls, and consciences of all who believe. This is what Owen says. Quote, There is not one gracious acting of the soul in any one believer 
at any time in the whole world, either in opposition unto sin or the performance of duty, but it is influence and under the guidance of the kingly power of Christ. In every moment, in every moment of your life when you experience grace, whether it's negative resistance or, or whether it's positive pursuit, whether you are fighting sin or loving others, it is because of the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the reason you experience grace because the Father has given him that kind of honor. He has made him Lord of all for all time. The Father has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus indeed is Lord. His glory is that great. Yahweh bestows splendor and majesty on his Messiah. It's the kind of splendor and majesty that makes angels. Angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, along with with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's the kind of glory that makes all of them fall down before him and say, to he who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The Father has given Jesus the glory of being that kind of king. He is over all for all time. Yahweh enthrones his Messiah as the universal eternal king. Here's the second way we see his glory. Okay, number two. Yahweh makes the Messiah the happiest person ever. This is straightforward in verse six, okay? Um, But remember first how the psalm even starts. Right away in verse one, we read that the king, the Messiah, rejoices in God's strength. He, he exults in God's salvation. And this is the banner over the entire psalm. The theme here is joy and celebration. And then in verse 6, we read that this joy, the, the joy of, of Messiah, the joy of the king is connected to the glory that Yahweh has given him. Notice this. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him for you make him most blessed Forever, You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Now, in verse 6, there's some we call it parallelism, okay? The second clause in verse 6 is expanding the first. You make him most blessed forever. Now, what is the nature of that eternal blessing? What does it mean to be most blessed forever? Gladness. You you make him glad with the joy of your presence. The Messiah is glad in the joy of Yahweh's presence. Now, now, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? It sounds like Psalm 1611, where the Messiah says to Yahweh, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Messiah's blessing 
is his joy. And of course, we know that the concept of blessedness and happiness go hand in hand. The blessed one is the happy one, which is how the Psalms begin. Remember Psalm 1, how Psalm 1 begins? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The Psalm 1 man is the happy man. The, the, the blessed man is the happy man, which is the Psalm 1 man, who is also the Psalm 15 man, who is the Psalm 24 man, we're going to see, who is the Messiah in Psalm 21. God has made him blessed. Jesus is happy. That's so important for us to know. That Jesus is happy. Now, a few weeks ago, back in Psalm 16, we, we talked about how the whole mission of Jesus is like from joy to joy. Jesus came, came from joy. He was headed back to joy. And Jesus came here to bring his church into that joy with him. And we see this in the Gospels. So clear in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples in John 15 to abide in his love just as he abides in the Father's love. And he says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus told the Father in his prayer in John 17 that he has taught his disciples so that they may have my joy, he says, fulfilled in themselves. Then, of course, we know Hebrews 12, 2, where we see Jesus endured the cross for, for the joy that was set before him. It, it's like the, the entire ministry of Jesus in his life and example and teaching and suffering and death and resurrection, his exaltation even now. It's like, it's like beneath all of that, there is this undercurrent of joy. Beneath the whole thing is, is joy. And I want to be clear. This is divine joy, okay? This is, this is joy that's not completely unlike the joy we experience, except it's transcendent. Jesus had a truer joy than we've yet to fully know, but it's still called joy, and he wants us to have it. He says that. He wants us to have his joy. And this is especially relevant to the kingship of Jesus. If Jesus is king over all and for all time, what kind of king is he, right? We want to know. Jesus is the sovereign over everything, so what's he like? The Bible says he's happy. He's happy, rock-solid happiness, not temperamental. It's immovable, unshakable, divine happiness. It is happiness from the essence, the very essence of the triune God. And for us to understand this, it requires us to look outside of ourselves and outside of our circumstances and even outside of our sufferings. It's like, you know, imagine if, if we could, if we could like get a hold, if we could like get our fingers on the very corner of reality, and, and if, we, if we could peel it back, 
It's like if we could see beneath, if we could see deeper than all the brokenness in this world, if, if, we, could go, if we could go there and look, if we could see what's behind it all, we will find a smile. We, we will hear laughter because Jesus is glad in the presence of his Father. Jesus is glad in the joy of his Father's presence. That is his glory. Yahweh makes the Messiah the happiest person ever. Now, here's the third way we see his glory. Yahweh gives the Messiah the power to subdue all of his enemies. Yahweh gives the Messiah the power to subdue all his enemies. Now, this is an aspect of kingship, but the whole second half of this psalm is about this, so we need to pay special attention to it. From verses 8 to 12, we see that the Messiah will judge all of his enemies. Now, first notice that this judgment, it is from the Messiah. It's from the Messiah. Now, throughout church history and even up to now, there are, are some folks who will think that the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. In the New Testament, uh, God is full of love. That's like an, you know, it's an urban legend of the Bible. You've heard this before. But if we actually read the Bible, that doesn't work because the one who executes final judgment is also the one who accomplishes salvation. It's the Messiah. N notice in verse 9. That, that the Messiah's judgment, the, the judgment here is connected to the Messiah's appearing. The, the blazing oven of wrath in verse 9. Th that is what the Messiah will do when he appears. And that's an important word. It's a good Bible word. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus appeared the first time to accomplish salvation. He suffered for us as um, our sacrifice to save us from our sins. And he will appear a second time. Jesus will appear a second time to consummate the salvation of his people, but also to bring final judgment. And the Apostle Paul talks about this so clearly in 2 Thessalonians 1. And I'm just going to pick up reading here. Let me read to you from 2 Thessalonians 1. Starting in verse 6, listen to this. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. It's salvation and judgment. There is a judgment seat. And Jesus is the one who is seated on it because the Father has given him that kind of glory. And, and we see even more glory here in the scope of this judgment. Notice the judgment is of all his enemies and all their schemes completely destroyed. We see that first 
in verse 8, the Messiah will find out all of his enemies. Every person who is opposed to Jesus, Jesus knows. This is a warning for us. We cannot hide from him. You, you cannot hide from Jesus. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No enemy gets away, and nothing they will do will ultimately succeed. We see this in verse 11. The enemies of the Messiah, the enemies of Jesus, are active in their opposition. They are planning evil against him. They conspire together about how they might destroy him. And of course, we, we see this in the Gospels. It's not long into the ministry of Jesus that we see the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him. And they do. Now, verse 11, though, verse 11 says they will not succeed. So how does this work? They didn't ultimately succeed. Because, see, the worst of all enemies is death. And Jesus put death to flight. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died to make war against the grave. He aimed at the face of the grave. Imagine the grave. Jesus aimed at the grave with his bow. And on the third day, he arose. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that Jesus will destroy every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Jesus, in his resurrection, he has broken the power of death. But on the last day, in his final judgment, Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, completely destroyed. And the victory belongs to Jesus. That is his glory. The victory belongs to Jesus, enthroned as king over all, happy in his father's presence, fierce in the judgment of his enemies. This is Jesus, and there is nobody like him. Nobody. Now, what does this mean for us? <laughs> what? Okay, so we, we see Jesus here. Now, what does it mean for me, for you? Well, verse 13 of this psalm concludes with praise to God. And this praise is like an invitation. We are invited to worship God, which we either do or we don't. We see the same conclusion in Psalm 2. There, in Psalm 2, in the context of Messiah's judgment, we're told, Kiss the Son. Honor the Son. And then there's the invitation. Will you take refuge in Him? 
Blessed are all who take refuge. Will you take refuge in the Messiah? And in the book of Revelation, see the same thing. In the book of Revelation, at the very end, after we have seen the judgment of Jesus at the end of Revelation, there's another invitation. And the invitation is to come. Are you thirsty? Are you, are you thirsty? Come. Come and drink. And then here in Psalm 21, in Psalm 21, where we see the glory of Jesus and we see that the glory of Jesus is beautiful and fierce, we see the same invitation. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Take refuge in him. Honor him. Let us, church, let us worship Jesus. Amen.